Hello, everyone. It's the Highlands Bunker Podcast. So here's the thing. We know you all love the cookout episode. We have the data, folks. Uh, more and more people are saying it, clearly. Uh, as I've said on many occasions, it would be an incredible demonstration of solidarity if a few of you good comrades who are enjoying the show could maybe sign up for a monthly patronage at patreon.com slash thehighlandsbunker. Support our work if you are in a position to do so. Uh, last week was a real hoot. Uh, I love talking shit. Uh, gossip, you know, uh, thanks to Kirsten, Jordan, Jess, and of course the local synthesized pop collaborative work study. They're like Pussy Riot without the balaclavas. Actually, balaclavas is a good idea. I'm going to mention that to Yejun. But it's not all fun and games, folks. We're not running a page six column here. Um, this isn't the fucking news journal. Sometimes we got to go deep. Uh, so today's discussion is a little more academic, something Carl calls Rob in the Weeds. Um, I do my best work in the weed, anyway, so uh, I guess we must go there. Uh, Jean Bajalan, professor of Middle East history at Missouri State University, is our guest. Uh, Jean is an expert in nationalist movements and is a regular contributor to a fine podcast out of Oakland called This is a Revolution. Uh, I hope to uh, have the host of that program, writer and commentator Pascal Robert, uh, on this very podcast uh, soon. Uh, Jean and I talk about class politics versus pseudo-class politics, and how this dynamic sometimes pollutes mass movement organizing. In the second half, we have a brief lesson uh, about the Kurds, their history in Iran, Syria, Iraq, and Turkey. We uh, also briefly discuss political parties in Turkey and how they actually have something to teach us about American political alignments. Uh, spoiler alert, there's no history of a labor party. That's the, that's the trick. Uh, so anyway, uh, enjoy this one. Left is best. Welcome, friends and comrades, to the Highlands Bunker Podcast. Rob here in the Shadow of Rockford Tower, sparring with our political enemies from deep within the bastion of the Delaware Way elite. Carl is, as always, on the levels from a secure remote location. And uh, joining virtually today is Professor Jean Bajalan. Professor Bajalan teaches Middle Eastern history at Missouri State University, and he is an expert in Middle East nationalist movements. Gene, uh, thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much for inviting me, Rob. Yeah, it's great. I always want to mention uh, when I host someone from the greater Michael Brooks universe that um, while the man himself may be gone, the project lives on. Uh, Michael was a big influence on me, and I became familiar with your work via the Michael Brooks show. And I've always had a keen interest in Turkish politics. Um, so I was immediately interested in your discussion with Michael on that topic and, and many others. Uh, but I, I always uh, want to point that out just so people know sort of where I'm coming from and um, how I get connected with such great people sometimes. Well, I really appreciate it. Yeah, Michael's loss was, uh, you know, like a big blow to uh, a lot of us. I think he was building a really important project, and I think he was doing a lot to educate uh, people and leftists in the United States about events taking place outside of the United States. I think there's a lot of parochialism uh, within American political discourse about the outside world, because, of course, if you're in America, you have the luxury of being able to ignore what happens in other parts of the world. But uh, if you're outside that, uh, outside of America, the world is very much in your face. So uh, the, the main topic I wanted to discuss today is class politics from a leftist perspective versus sort of a reactionary reframing of class politics with culture, cultural and nationalistic tendencies. 
Um, this was something that came up last week in the majority report. You responded at length um, to an interview guest about uh, a book he had written on populism, nationalism, and socialism in the U.S. And while your critique wasn't particularly aimed at the guest himself, it was more sort of a broad ideological question. I think the dynamic is on display even at the hyper-local level of organizing, um, as well as we continue to try to build leftist coalitions. Um, so there's this reactionary reframing, and it's kind of a trap, I think. I think you might have even called it that. Um, something you referred to as pseudo-class politics, where uh, leftists with a Marxist bent try to orient folks to recognize their relationship to capital, uh, but this effort can be undermined or polluted by sort of playing up cultural prejudices or resentments and so on. Um, and it's more of a right-wing rhetoric that seizes on opportunities to capture disaffected workers, say. Um, can you explain um, the difference here between class politics of the leftist type and what you call pseudo-class politics or cultural class politics and how right populism sort of reframes the argument to undermine what would be a sort of a leftist Marxist project? Sure. So um, the Marxist framing of class is a, a, an objective framing. So one's social class is related to one's relationship to the means of production. And you don't have to be even a Marxist to sort of understand this kind of objective uh, description of social class. So, you know, obviously we have in capitalist society, we have people who are workers, who are proletarians, and people who are capitalists. And then we have certain intermediary groups, the petty bourgeoisie in Marxian terminology, individuals who might be salaried workers, or, or you know, they might be uh, professionals or small-scale capitalists, the kind of intermediary uh, class that doesn't fit into one or the other. And of course, when we look at individuals and their relationship to the economy, often people sort of have multiple uh, class uh, positions. Like you could be a worker, but who also derives some money from owning a rental property, right? You could be someone who was raised in a working class family who later on becomes a small business owner and so on and so forth. So obviously in reality, you know, when we talk about people's class position, there are some complicating factors, but on the left broadly, we look at class, we should look at class as this kind of objective relationship to, uh, to the economy, right? And of course, it is kind of irrelevant what type of work you're doing, right? Uh, with, uh, with regards to the economy, you know, the working class is not a homogeneous cultural institution because it's not defined specifically by a culture. It is defined by one's relationship to, to the means of production. Now, on the right, though, what we're beginning to see is the mobilization of the idiom of class politics, the idiom of workers, right? But with a whole load of cultural baggage and within a broader discursive framework, which sort of uh, which looks at class less in terms of one's objective relationship to the economy and more in terms of a cultural habitus and more specifically whether one is credentialed at a university or not. And I think, you know, if you look at right-wing discourse, there is, you know, a huge amount of anti-intellectualism. And what we're seeing, you know, we see it in writers today like Lind, but, you know, you have sort of a, a tradition uh, going back to, you know, someone like Burnham 
who was a former Trotskyist who later ended up working for the National Review, who wrote a book called The Managerial Revolution, which basically argued that, you know, political leadership in society was being used up by a managerial elite. And you will hear this terminology used both on the left, this term, the professional managerial elite, which comes from uh, Barbara Ehrenreich's uh, uh, book uh, on, on this class, on this sort of uh, caste, as we might call it, which, you know, posits that we have, you know, a professional managerial elite of credentialed people. Now, what is the problem with that discourse? You know, you know, when Marx was writing, you know, you didn't need to have credentials to do a lot of working class jobs. But today, obviously, the situation is radically different. Many jobs which are sort of working class in orientation do require uh, credentials. So we have a left, uh, we have a right wing critique, which uses the language of, of, of class, but really is talking about a division between those who are inverted commas educated through the university system and those who are not. And while that seems like a meaningful distinction and seems like almost a class distinction, it is not because one does not need to have a university degree to be a capitalist and having a university degree uh, does not automatically mean that you uh, enter the professional managerial inverted commas ruling elite of society. Certainly there is some, there, it, it might be meaningful within certain contexts to talk about cultural divisions within society based around education. Now, you know, I'm not disputing that, but that is not class politics. And so uh, what the right often tries to do, and there are people on the left who kind of buy into it, is to sort of reframe class uh, politics in terms of a struggle between the hardworking people, the, the proletarian uh, uh, classes, who they envisage as being the sort of mythical white worker in a steel mill uh, versus, you know, overeducated eggheads who are forcing everybody into diversity training and who are uh, super woke and have no respect for uh, working class culture. And this framing, which certain people on the left sort of buy into, is extremely uh, uh, is extremely misleading because it's not class politics. You can be a guy who didn't go to university but own a construction company in Springfield, Missouri, uh, turning over half a million a year. That doesn't make you just because you like you know you know shooting skeet or whatever. I don't know what you Americans do, but you know like doing some kind of like uh, inverted columns hillbilly activity. And uh, having some cultural similarities with, you know, poor, poor working class white people doesn't make you a worker. You're a capitalist because of your relationship with the uh, means of production, just as a kind of uh, uh, an adjunct professor with a PhD or, or uh, working for like under minimum wage is not a member of the elite in any meaningful way, just because they have a degree. Um, and just because their sort of tastes more align perhaps with, you know, like the urban middle class in terms of like, they like, let's say, you know, whatever urban mid upper middle class people like in terms of music and culture. So we see a kind of reframing of class politics in a cultural uh, baggage. So it's basically a way that we, we're seeing, you know, right-wing ideas about sort of cultural uh, difference between the eggheads uh, 
uh, and the working class and the, the, the capitalist class who are who seen as the real producers of society, smuggling those ideas in a kind of pseudo-Marxist lens. Uh, so I hope that makes sense in terms of what I'm talking about. Yeah, I think it does. I mean, I think that that sort of, sort of fake dynamic between professional managerial sort of credentialed eggheads um, and urban sort of, you know, sushi eating elites or whatever uh, with a with a uh, with a worker or, you know, a proletarian worker is is framing that, for example, will allow people to then talk about immigration in the way that reactionaries talk about immigration, because there's this sort of argument that um, increased immigration uh, is mostly going to be, quote unquote, low skilled or, or uncredentialed people who are coming here and then competing for the same types of jobs and driving wages down. Now, that's the argument. Um, there's never a lot of evidence for that, but you can make that argument when you start to when you st start to muddy the waters about what class politics is. And I think that's why it's so important to try to unpack this. It's a little bit complicated, but that's how it sort of plays itself out like um, in political discourse, I think. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree. You, this kind of faux concern for workers, this, let's say, like right wing workerism, which fetishizes a particular type of worker, the industrial worker, the, and usually the white industrial worker, that sort of fetishizes them as a cultural touchstone, um, allows one to smuggle in all these kind of anti-immigrant and uh, sort of uh, anti-xenophobic you know, uh, political ideas into left-wing spaces. Because of course, you know, you, you, if we're concerned about you know, undocumented workers, uh, uh, you know, taking, you know, low skilled jobs, we, you can focus your anger on the undocumented workers, or you can focus it on the capitalists who are going to take, you know, who are taking advantage of those like uh, people who are in a very weak bargaining position to exploit them, uh, you know, in a very brutal way. But of course, this moves the kind of focus of fire away from the capitalists towards, you know, the, the most vulnerable people in society who are undocumented workers in the country uh, and obfuscates the very real war on workers that the right flank of capital, as well as the left flank of capital, you know, but, you know, very much the vicious war uh, that, you know, Republicans engage in against the working class in terms of smashing labor unions in terms of you know driving down wages in, in terms of stacking the deck in favor of capitalists vis-a-vis uh, -vis workers when it comes to negotiation obfuscates that and directs that sort of anger towards you know fears about you know foreigners taking taking jobs i mean when you look at it in the united states you, you could probably guess from my accent i'm not from here and i guess i would count as a high skill worker you know so high skill workers come to the united states as well but usually there's this kind of focus on these low skill these low skill jobs and this sort of labor uh, exploitation so uh, i you know it's a kind of distraction and i think there are inverted commas useful idiots on the on the on the left, who buy into this discourse, which drives people towards the political right, and uh, you know, functionally speaking, if you engage in electoral politics in the United States, you're either functionally a Democrat or you're functionally a Republican. Now, not everybody engages in electoral politics, so I'm not saying all politics is electoral, 
But when you're engaging in electoral politics, you know, you're functionally either Democrat or you're functionally a Republican. So when we cut below these, uh, when we cut beneath the surface, uh, surface of certain of these uh, post-leftists or, um, you know, uh, uh, pro-worker people, they're functionally Republicans voting for Republicans who by and large have a more extreme anti-worker uh, agenda. And this is not abstract. This is a very real thing. We've seen it in places like Wisconsin. We've seen it in, you know, um, uh, we've seen, you know, we've seen it in places like Missouri. So across the United States, we see the the Republicans once in power. They might have the sweet words of rhetoric, uh, you know, about how much they care for the workers, but in reality, they go about annihilating the, uh, you know, the the ability of workers to uh, sustain themselves in in, in you know in in the, in the American economy. Yeah, I wanted to um, try to figure out whether the idea of of populism sort of drives uh, any some sort of nationalism in the United States. I, I do want to talk about some other places too, because I, I think you're gonna ha you have a lot of um, uh, things to say about um, nationalist movements in the Middle East and and also in South America. I, I'd like to talk about that, but in the United States, you know, there's definitely a psychological cultural idea of an American and and how how does that sort of play into this interaction between being able to sort of slice and dice um, sort of cultural uh, categories um, and call it class-based politics when when it isn't does that make sense yeah I mean I think uh, the nationalism issue I think you know we have to understand the significance of nationalism uh, in a number of different ways when we talk about nationalism, you know, we're talking about a number of different things, right? So, you know, it's one of those concepts which, you know, is to a certain degree protean uh, in the sense that depending on the context we're talking on about, it means different things, right? So on one level, nationalism is a kind of global system. It's the way that our world is organized fundamentally in terms of state power. Every single state in the world defines itself as a nation to a greater or lesser degree. And even when they're not like a single nation, they define themselves as a federation of nations. So the nation state is a fundamental sort of organizing uh, principle of the modern era. And there's a number of different reasons for that, which we don't need to go into. Uh, but, you know, in the vernacular, when we're talking about the United States, you know, we're talking about uh, we're talking about sort of, uh, yeah, symbols and culture of what it means to be an American and sort of the objective of nationalists. And, you know, most people are nationalists to a certain degree, whether they're like super enthusiastic about nationalism or just accept nationalism as a kind of organizing principle of how sort of power is organized in the modern world. You know, everybody sort of has to bend the knee to the, the notion that, nations are functionally in existence as sort of containers of power. I think uh, Anthony Giddens calls them. It. It's like you orientate your politics on national lines, right? You, very few movements are sort of transnational. You know, you focus on taking power at a specific, in a specific country. So, you know, we all organize, organize our politics on a kind of national level or with an acceptance of the existence of nationalism in a functional sense. But of course, 
what it means to be an American, culturally speaking, is a concept that has been since the inception and continues to be contested. You know, the nation as a, as a concept uh, is never finalized, right? You know, a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, scholars talk about nation formation and nation construction, right? And I think that language is useful because nations are kind of built uh, in the modern era, like common identities are built through institutions such as state education and through, you know, unintentional things. Uh, there's a scholar called Billings who talks about banal nationalism. For example, the fact that your your like evening news cat. It, let's say, give, I'll give you an example. You live in Seattle. Vancouver is a lot is a lot closer to you, physically, but you're more likely to know about something that's happening in Chicago because of the way that your na your national news is organized. So it sort of builds this conception of us being sort of in a national com community in a uh, in a banal fashion. So we have nations being constructed over time as political communities, as uh, as uh, uh, Benedict Anderson called them, imagined communities, where we see ourselves as being part uh, of a nation. But the problem with the construction language is because it, it kind of sometimes it might imply that the construction is finished, but it is always under revision. So you know, at one time in American history, you know people of East Asian origin weren't regarded as real Americans, right? Only white people were regarded as full Americans. Over time, there has been a change in our understanding of who Americans are. So you have today a hegemonic liberal idea of the American nation as this melting, melting pot of different groups uh, of people. But then you also have a sort of counter narrative uh, on the political right, which talks about you know, the American nation as, you know, Judeo, you know, all these code words for basically saying white and Christian, right? So you have this conflict uh, over what it means to be uh, an American and populism can draw on, on that conflict, right? And it can present a charade of, uh, of uh, ethnic slash racial unity on the political uh, right, that draws, um, you know, workers and capitalists who share, let's say, a common cultural and racial identity into a political alliance when their actual class interests are quite divergent. And my colleague on the This Is Revolution podcast, uh, Pascal Robert, often talks about how black uh, identity politics often functions in this way as well as a way to create a charade of class unity amongst the black community, as if the interests of the black bourgeoisie are the same as the interests of the black working class. This is exactly what's happening on the political right with this cultural framing and this workerism, which is you know, creating a charade of, of unity amongst inverted commas, real Americans to obscure the class differences between uh, you know, uh, the elites and the working class. Yeah, and I think there, there's a practical problem to practical political problem, too. Uh, and it was brought up last week in this discussion about just being able to argue for universal social programs. Um, <clears throat> you know, certainly it's difficult to argue for universal programs if people if they're universal and people that are getting them aren't, quote unquote, Americans in some fashion, in some fashion, whether they're undocumented or whether they're just not like you necessarily and i that's the, you know you hear this a lot uh when you talk about just you know social democratic 
programs in Scandinavia, say, and someone will say, well, they ho- they have homogeneous societies for them. Well, at least more than maybe the United States. And so that's why they're able to do it. And, and we just can't. And I th- and I think that that's, again, like you said, sort of a uh, it's a it's 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 a, it's fake. Uh, but but it's real in people's minds and you have to come up with a way to be able to sort of talk about that in in these kind of terms, I think. Yeah, I mean, I think the the homogeneous society argument gives the ghost away about what this is all about, because, of course, you know, putting aside the uh, the the issues relating to immigration and, uh, you know, uh undocumented workers putting those issues aside you know they're not just talking about them they're talking about about the fact that america has re- a, a high degree of racial and ethnic diversity and it's a pseudo racist claim because of course if you know anything about scandinavia scandinavian societies are not uh, homogeneous a good example is finland 10 percent of finland's population are swedes and there's a history of ethnic and political conflict between the Swede, uh, the Swedes, and the Finnish. You know, of course, uh, if you if you mention that, then they'll go, oh, but they're all like they're they're similar. Well, why are they similar? Because they're white, right? So you know, but you know, they speak different languages, languages which are from different you know linguistic groups. They have you know different political cultures. Uh, there was a significant conflict. So, you know, this this argument about homogeneity is, uh, again, is a way, and I don't think everybody does it intentionally, don't get me wrong, uh, but but is, is a way that sort of uh, identi- uh, ideas about racial unity are smuggled into the political discourse in a more palatable form. I mean, if we say, if you say, oh, but they're all white, that's why it works for them. That's not really a, a, a kind of discourse that will do very well in our present age, you know, if there's one success of the 1960s, one important success, it's made overt racial politics uh, slightly distasteful. But uh, yeah, but these ideas continue on uh, under a whole load of different euphemisms. So we have this sort of charade, uh, this critique where it's like America can't afford these programs because uh, we don't have uh, cultural unity. What does that even mean, right? You know, what does that even mean? America is not the only country that has undocumented workers. There are undocumented workers in Europe. No, it's just, it's a a way to sort of deflect the conversation away from the idea of having universal programs and universal goods. No, I I, I agree. It's always, and and I do, I, 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 as you do, don't think it's necessarily always bad faith but yeah you pick at it and you're only one or two steps away from just a blatantly racialized argument so it is it's it's pretty easy to take down but when you talk to people in good faith uh they will say you know there is this feeling that uh and i think maybe it was mentioned in in the discussion last week that you know if 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 there are universal programs there has to be some sort of uh cultural uh you know homogeneous culture in some fashion but as you said i don't i've never explained first of all i don't know if there's any proof of that as you said in europe that's certainly not the case and um what would that even mean if it were like what would that how would that work in practice this sort of like um uh cultural homogeneous i I don't even know what that would even be no one no one's ever explained cultural uh you know same 
talking about cultural uh, homogeneity is like talking about nations, right? At first, everybody thinks, oh, it's very clear what we're talking about. But when you actually, you know, drill down into the concept, it becomes very unclear about what these things are because they're very vague, they're kaleidoscopic, they're ever shifting. How do we do, for example, you know, no culture is ever homogeneous, right? There, you know, nation building processes have to a certain degree sort of integrated culture, you know, regional differences in terms of accent or tastes are to a certain degree annihilated by, you know, capitalist modernity, you know, and by state integration, you know, standardizing education to a certain degree helps build kind of uh, commonalities. But even with all that, there are huge differences in culture, even within the most homogeneous sort of uh, inverted commas uh, uh, nation states, right? So, you know, the, and again, to return to, you know, turn, turn to the example of the way minority politics is, is talked about. When we talk about the black community in the United States, is that a homogeneous community? Is a Haitian immigrant in New York the same as the descendant of a crop, uh, you know, a sharecropper in, in Atlanta is the same as a recently arrived Nigerian medical doctor, you know, uh, in, in California? Just as when we talk about the white identity, you know, is, uh, you know, is, is a white working class person from West Virginia the same, as, uh, you know, minor, the same as somebody who works in a factory in the, a Polish American who works in a factory on the border, uh, outskirts of Detroit. You know, this, uh, these, these identity categories are often far more complicated and, I, I see, you know, this pseudo work, workerism that posits a kind of, uh, you know, cultural unity and a disdain for, for the intelligentsia and, and the intellectuals as a kind of counterpoint, uh, as creating a kind of charade of class unity based on a kind of mythical American culture that is dismissive of elements that don't quite fit in. I'll give you an example, you know, like I respect Matt Taibbi as a journalist and the work that he's done, but he did a critique of Marcuse uh, recent, uh, recently, he wrote an article critiquing Marcuse. And one of his criticisms was like, Marcuse was a kind of effeminate European intellectual who, and I'm, you know, paraphrasing, who wouldn't be, who wouldn't be able to sit down and enjoy Bud Light, right? It's like, is, in sitting down and enjoying a Bud Light, like sort of some essential characteristic of being a real American, right? What does this even mean? So we have this kind of, we have this uh, uh, perception of the creation of a kind of American identity, which I will say on the political right, uh, it's vague because sometimes it emphasizes, you know, implicitly emphasizes whiteness, but at times there is space for including sort of, uh, black or Latino uh, uh, populations. It's a kind of vague identity. You, you know, they can draw on sort of reactionary strains within black politics and uh, reactionary strains within uh, uh, the, the Latino community, which is extremely diverse itself. And we, you know, we didn't touch on that. But by and large, it has this kind of image of the real American as a burger eating, Bud Light swilling, you know, diner attending, Golden Corral fan.
which is which is you know is a myth as much as any other image of Americans are. No, I totally. I mean that that's sort of um, one of <clears throat> one of my little shorthands is always trying to convince everybody that a lot of this is fake. <laughs> you know, it's just not. Uh, we have to somehow be able to untangle all of this and see what's sort of underneath because it's a, you know, it's a it's a veneer um, that people are using for particular reactionary political means, and uh, and it has to be it has to be pulled pulled away. Um, I'd like to switch uh, topics a little bit because, um, as I said, I do uh, I follow Turkish politics a little bit. One of my oldest and dearest friends uh, is. Uh, is from Izmir. Actually, he was born in the United States, but he went back to Izmir and grew up in, in Turkey and came back as an adult. Um, and so, as long as I've known him, I've, I've followed um, Turkish politics. He made me read a, a 900-page bi biography of Ataturk uh, about 15 years ago, which was fun. <laughs> was it the uh, Was it Krinos? But it was Man Andrew Mango. Andrew, Andrew Mango. Yeah, I know the Mango book. Yeah, you know that one. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there's an interesting thing about that we could talk about in a minute but I, I did want to um, just talk about um, the Turks relationship um, to to the Kurds and and PKK within Turkey what they're doing now outside of of, of Turkey um, you know I you know Christopher Hitchens is a is a, uh, is, is, a is a figure who uh, over the course of his life took a, a lot of different positions and was a pretty controversial figure I um, I did follow Hitchens uh, and, and his work very closely and I know he was a he was somebody who saw the Kurds as, as certainly an oppressed people both in, in Iraq and, and in Syria and in Turkey uh, and I and I still sort of feel that way um, doesn't get a lot of press here um, and I know that there was just another sort of incursion into Syria I think um, by the and Iraq um, uh, on the Kurds can you can you kind of Give us a little bit of background about um, the Kurds in Turkey, um, the PKK, and sort of what's going on now uh, uh, in that in that region of the world. Sure. So this is, I should point out, this is a complicated question. So like, I'm going to have to go back on a little bit of history to explain what exactly we're talking about and how we can contextualize sort of the Kurdish community, even if we're only going to focus on the Kurdish question in Turkey. So. After the First World War, uh, you know, before the First World War, the majority of the Kurdish population lived in the Ottoman Empire, and there was a, a you know a, a minority who lived in Iran, but in a contiguous region that sort of straddled the border regions. And at that point in history, the kind of boundaries weren't very strong, so you know people would go back and forth. You know, the, the boundaries between the Ottoman Empire and Iran weren't finalized until 1914, and you know those boundaries today are a lot harder. Uh, uh, than, than they were in the past. After the First World War, the Ottoman Empire collapsed. Turkey was the successor state to the Ottoman Empire, uh, but Iraq, Syria, and of course Iran all had their own Kurdish population. So this sort of contiguous region in which the Kurds lived, uh, which Kurds called Kurdistan, was divided between uh, these countries. And of course, over the course of the 20th century, uh, the boundaries have been strengthened by technology, by state centralization and within each region of Kurdistan there have developed distinct political movements because of course the interaction between the central government authority and the Kurdish community in each of these different countries has been different and has given rise to sort of different characteristics in each uh, movement and so you know today we have 
distinctive movements in each of the different parts of Kurdistan. So the Iranian Kurdish movement is distinct from the movement in Iraq, which is distinct from Syria, which is distinct from Turkey. So we have distinct movement. But of course, because you know the boundaries are not entirely sealed and because you know Kurds have a sense of like a broader unity, there's also important interactions, both sort of in terms of you know the the influence, you know, the, the, the events taking place of one part of Kurdistan will affect the event, you know, what's taking place in other parts of Kurdistan. There are overlaps in terms of institutions, in terms of personnel, in terms of ideology, and so on and so forth. So you have these like kind of in this interesting dyna dynamic between a kind of pan-Kurdish political identity and the kind of more regionalized uh, movements which focus on that particular part of Kurdistan. So, you know, the Iraqi Kurdish movement only claims to represent Iraqi Kurdistan. The Iranian Kurdish movement only really claims to, you know, operate in, in, in Iran. The PKK in Turkey is a little bit different, and I'll go into that in a little bit, but by and large, we have these distinct movements. So what about in Turkey? Well, in Turkey, uh, over the course of the 20th century, you had a, you know, a policy of repression and denial of a kind of cultural war fought against the Kurdish community, uh, which included sort of the suppression of the, the language, the suppression of the culture, and an attempt to assimilate the Kurdish uh, community through a kind of what you might think of as a, uh, a uh, civilizing mission. So, you know, the Turkish political identity, you know, the Turkish political project, you know, founded by Mustafa Kemal Ataturk in, uh, in the early 1920s, had this strong civilizing mission idea towards the Kurds, it posited the idea that the Kurds weren't really a nation and that they should be educated to be good Turks. They should assimilate into the Turkish political identity. And, you know, this project was sort of uh, realized through military repression and also sort of what you might, you know, the similar kind of policies that the United States adopted towards the Native American population, you know, like yes. boarding schools, imposing language, abducting children and so on and so forth. Now, of course, but this was uh, this policy sort of sh has shifted over time. You know, the Turkish state also at the same time assimilated certain elements of the indigenous Kurdish elite. So, you know, from the 1930s onwards, Kurdish landowners were integrated into the sort of Turkish political order. So you had, you know, land landowners uh, joining the Turkish parliament, being involved and in the, you know, in the 50s and 60s, you have the rise of kind of a new wave of Kurdish political activism, which is a lot more left orientated. And it is sort of, uh, which is sort of uh, orientated towards kind of not only sort of a critique of Turkish cultural repression of the Kurds, but also a kind of class war that, you know, there's this, the Turkish state is supporting this feudal landowning elite in Kurdistan. These uh, landowners are... Um, you know, compradors, right? You know, selling out the Kurdish community for political power and influence. And, you know, in the 60s and 70s, you have, well, in the 50s, and in particular in the 60s, you have two sort of strands of Kurdish politics, neither of which is particularly separatist orientated, right? The first strand is what we might call constitutionalists. These were individuals who tended to come from more elite backgrounds who hoped to work within the Turkish political system you know, in 1960, there was a new constitution in Turkey imposed by the military, which happened to be slightly more democratic than the previous constitutional order. And these individuals, you know, 
said, look, let's work within the Turkish political system, this constitutional system, to promote economic development, to pro perhaps better cultural rights for the Kurds, but let's do it constitutionally, right? And, and like I said, these tended to be sort of the sons of landowners, people from traditional uh, backgrounds whose politics were generally culturally focused, right? And some of them rose to important positions and did implement, you know, uh, increase, you know, spending in, in, in predominantly Kurdish regions. The other strand of politics saw the Kurdish question as being part of a general left-wing revolutionary question within Turkey, i.e. the Kurds should ally with the Turkish left and you know, we should have a proletarian revolution and that proletarian revolution will solve the Kurdish question you know, because you know, socialist regimes are gonna solve the national question, accept cultural rights and also engage in economic development. Both those movements are crushed and failed by the 1970s. And what emerges out of this is the PKK which on one hand takes on the kind of nationalist idea of a Kurdish homeland and a Kurdish state, talks about the creation of not just a Kurdish homeland in Turkey, but a united independent uh, 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 Kurdistan covering all the Kurdish regions in the Middle East, uh, and also adopts a kind of Marxist-Leninist Maoist framework talking about a socialist Kurdistan, and frames its activities not simply as a war against the Turkish state, but also a war against the landowning elite that had sold out the Kurdish people. So the PKK's first military activities are against landowners and against other Kurdish left-wing parties that are seen as collaborationist or not as radical. So we have the beginnings of this war. It's only the PKK is founded in the late 1970s. There's a coup in the 80s, the PKK runs to uh, Syria, gets some support from the Syrian government because Syria has bad relations with Turkey. Uh, so the PKK begins its activities as launching a kind of class war in, 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 um, in, in Turkish Kurdistan. And it's only when they return in the 1980s that they start fighting the Turkish state directly. Their early activities are sort of against other Kurdish groups and also against this landowning elite. And they become this kind of like very harsh sort of uh, Maoist slash Stalinist political force that engages, you know, like that fights this hard, very hard fought war uh, uh, against the Turkish state. And that war, you know, continues on in the 80s. Uh, and in the 90s, there is a, a, a parliamentary movement begins to develop as well, which is kind of both independent from the PKK, but also in terms of the popular support. You know, a lot of the people who support the PKK are also like favorable to the parliamentary movement. And this war continues up until like 1999, where the leader of the PKK, Abdul Erjelan, is captured uh, by Turkish uh, intelligence uh, agents with the help of the United States and Israel. And sort of the PKK goes through a kind of political metamorphosis and moves away from its sort of, um, sort of Stalinist slash Maoist origins to being a movement that you know, adopts an, a more libertarian socialist posture, even though it's still a very centralized uh, political organization. So the PKK, you know, since 1984 has been fighting the Turkish government. And of course its bases uh, up until the late nineties, it was, you know, it had bases in Syria, although the Turkish government was successful in pressuring, uh, well, actually had bases in Lebanon as well, was successful in pressuring the Syrians to push out the PKK or at least the leadership of the PKK. 
Um, but, you know, they also had military bases in northern Iraq, in, in these, this mountainous region, which is extremely difficult to control. And they continue to have these bases to this day. And periodically, the Turkish armed forces have launched offensives against the PKK uh, in Iraq, never with any success. And today we're seeing a sort of another offensive that's, take, uh, that's taking place, which comes after a period in the sort of early 2000s to about the mid uh, 2010s in which the conflict to a certain degree died down because there was this sort of negotiation process taking place with the PKK. And I should note at the same time, uh, I mentioned the emergence of a parliamentary movement. We see the parliamentary movement moving from strength to strength and it really peaks in 2015. One of the reasons for the souring of the relationship, you know, the sort of end of the, the hopes that there might be a peace process between uh, the, the Turkish government and the, the, the Kurdish movements is that the HDP, the, the Kurdish political party, manages to transform itself from being a kind of more Kurdish nationalist oriented organization to being a broader umbrella group for the radical left in Turkey and integrating, you know, leftists from across the country. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask you about, too, because every, you know, every two or three years we get excited about possibly, um, you know, challenging AKPs and, and, and Erdogan's uh, position uh, in the government uh, because it's a sort of an oppressive nationalist government. And while I was happy to see this coalition of leftists sort of come together under sort of Kurdish leadership in the HDP, um, I, I don't know what kind of successes they're having. So I'm, I'm actually very interested in where that where that stands, that that coalition stands as a as a sort of a, a leftist coalition. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um... The movement sort of was successful, especially because of the personal charisma of Salatin Demirtas, who was the co-leader of the party, in sort of making appeals to you know solidarity across to build this kind of you know radical left uh, uh, coalition. And this has been criticised by elements on the Kurdish political right, who's who are like, why are you focusing on universalism? You should be focusing on you know Kurdish issues. But this was relatively successful compared to sort of previous stands. So that the share of the vote went from up from about six, seven percent to twelve percent. And in 2015, this meant that Erdogan lost his parliamentary sort of dominance. And Erdogan, who had been sort of fl uh, flirting with the Kurdish political movement, and, you know, Erdogan as a political opportunist, shifted away from a kind of friendlier posture towards the Kurds, towards a nationalist posture making an alliance with the MHP, which is a kind of fascist political organization in Turkey. Uh, so shifting it from this uh, sort of more liberal stance that it had in its earlier days, one which was sort of at least formally open to negotiation and the resolution of the Kurdish question towards a more nationalist uh, political stance, which involved demonizing the HDP and the repression of the HDP. So since 2015, um, you know, you've seen the, uh, you know, uh, arrest and, and imprisonment, not only of the HDP's leadership, but of, you know, HDP, hundreds of HDP uh, politicians across the country, local government, which was under HDP control, their leaders have been, you know, dismissed and government appointees put in their place. So you've had this huge wave of repression against uh, the HDP, which is couched in terms of the HDP being the political winner of the PKK, even though 
Ironically, there was a significant degree of tension between the PKK and the HDP because Saladin Demirtas was beginning to eclipse Abdullah Öcalan, the jailed leader of the PKK, as the kind of representative of the Kurdish movement. You know, as the parliamentary movement grew in strength, the PKK's political re relevance declined. So the IKP actually gave the PKK a sort of new lease of life through this um, uh, repression, which of course has a political, uh, 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 you know, an impeccable sort of nationalist political uh, logic to it. And I would note the repression of the PK, uh, uh, HDP uh, has been aided and abetted by the uh, Kemalist elite in Turkey. So the, the previous ruling elites of Turkey before the rise of the AKP were these secular nationalists who adhered to the ideology of Mustafa Kemal Ataturk, who are at the end of the day, even though they uh, have a different vision of what Turkish nationhood is to the AKP, AKP are a lot more Islamic orientated, are still nationalists. So the AKP has been uh, very effective at ensuring that uh, the opposition to them is divided between inverted commas, nationalist and anti-nationalist lines. So by provoking a conflict with the HDP, it undermines the ability of a broader kind of anti-RKP coalition from forming. Because in cases where the HDP has supported the opposition, the People's Republican Party, the, the, the Republican People's Party, the largest opposition group, the JHP, in places like the Istanbul mayoral election, and the Ankara mayoral elections, they've managed to ouster the uh, 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 RKP from power. So they don't want to see something like this happening, uh, happening on a national level. So exploiting those divisions, but you know, playing on the sort of nationalism inherent even within the Turkish opposition by demonizing the HDP and the Kurdish community also helps secure the RKP in power. Yeah, that, that's what is so interesting to me is the way that nationalism is used in different ways by different people that are that are, you know, opposite. You know, the Kamalists, you know, uh, you know, my good friend who, you know, I, I, I think of him as sort of a nationalist. Now, he's a secular guy. Uh, he supported HDP. Um, but, yeah, it, it's still a it, it, it's still a very strong um, nationalist feeling. You know, he'll still probably say that PKK are terrorists. So it's it's very it's very complicated, um, and and I think that uh, you know something like this helps us sort of elucidate how complicated it can it can it can be. You know, well, if you want to think of it, uh, drawing the comparison with American politics, which I think actually Turkey is a good example, is a good comparison point for American politics. You know, in the 1950s, the uh, conservative politicians used to talk in Turkey used to talk about. Turkey becoming a small America. And, you know, it's quite interesting because both Turkey and the United States do not have a strong, they don't have political parties that, dominant political parties that have grown out of working class labor movements. They don't have labor parties, right? Right. They have the, uh, Turkey has the JHP, the People, Republican People's Party, which was a state authoritarian state party that appropriated left-wing political language in the 1970s, right? Uh, just as the Democratic Party became the kind of inverted commas working class party in, uh, in the 1930s. And we, uh, we see a political conflict between, uh, you know, the, the, the political conflict between the Republicans and the Democrats are, of, uh, are often centered around cultural issues 
and notions of what it is to be an American, just as in Turkey, there is a huge conflict between uh, you know, the, the secular Kamas and the AKP over a lot of uh, cultural symbols and, and, you know, whether people should be wearing headscarves or what it is to be Turkish and things like that, which obscures class politics and which allows conservatives to, to play with social divisions in society, just as racial politics has been used to, you know, divide the American working class. The divide between Kurd and Turk has been used in Turkey to you know, uh, divide the working class as well. So, you know, these issues of nationality aren't as different when you sort of get down to them. The, the context is different, right? But sort of the function is very similar because at the end of the day, we don't have, uh, both in Turkey and in the United States, there isn't a strong working class political party, uh, you know, even a sort of very like inverted commas, moderate one. The, and politics revolves around these cultural issues rather than vast divisions in terms of policy. Because at the end of the day, yes, there are meaningful differences between Republicans and Democrats, and there are meaningful differences between the AKP and the, uh, the JHP, JHP. But uh, the differences aren't as stark as they might seem in terms of economic policy than sort of the cultural focus might have us believe. Professor Bajalan, thank you so much uh, for joining us. I really appreciate it. Um, I think, as I said, I think this is a very complicated issue, but very important um, to sort of suss out um, when you're trying to build a, uh, you know, a political, when you have a political project that is sort of rooted in class analysis and, and labor, but with no labor history, as you said, um, it becomes even more complicated uh, because people are entrenched in sort of other ideas uh, or overlaps or uh, I mean you explained it with um, with the Kurds you know you, you've had capitalist large landowners um, and also people who would like to take on more leftist sort of ideas so yeah all of this stuff is fascinating to me and I, and I really appreciate you coming in and talking about it well thank you for having me on cool and uh, everyone we're gonna link uh, to uh, the this is a revolution podcast which is very good uh, we'll link to uh, Dean's stuff. And uh, you know how to reach us. Uh, Patreon.com slash the Highlands Bunker. At Highlands Bunker on Twitter. And uh, keep up the fight, everybody. Left is best. <laughs> <laughs>